the deep things of you that call out to the deep things of us. In the places that we cannot even access in ourselves, they are not hidden before you. In our deepest pains, in our quietest moments, in the angry spots, in the broken spots, the things that are most sacred, the things that are most scary, you see us plainly. We are unveiled before your eyes. We needed a Savior who would come and die and bear those deep things that we all face. We thank you, Jesus, that you were willing that you were submissive to your Father's plan. That you were willing to come, willing to pay the price in our stead. The things that we talk about tonight, that you endured, we deserve. You took our spot. Thank you for your death. Thank you for your suffering. <clears throat> Thank you for life in your resurrection. Thank you for not abandoning us as orphans by giving us your spirit. All our needs, all our hopes, all the things that define who we are are summed up in you, Jesus. Everything that humanity has wanted, everything that humanity has strived to be, Everything that we've needed is found in you. We're so grateful that you became one of us. You humbled yourself, you lowered yourself to take on the form of a servant, as Philippians says. The mighty God of the universe in flesh willing to go to his own people to save them and humble enough to let them murder him. You pour out that humility on us. The humility to do what's right no matter the cost. To follow in your footsteps and be willing to die like you did for God's will. We live with that same kind of commitment and dependence and submissiveness to our Father. The one you introduced us to. The one that you allowed us to call our Father because of what you accomplished. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus. By the Spirit that you poured out, His great power. You have your Bibles tonight. We're in John 18. We'll be finishing up John 18 and going all the way to chapter 19, verse 15. Remember where we're at 
in the story of the Gospel of John, Peter has just left. Peter has just left Jesus alone. He's denied his Lord. And Jesus, by all accounts, has no one left but his Father to walk with him towards where he's headed. We start tonight in verse 28. Remember, Peter denied Jesus the third time, and the rooster crowed. This is verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. But they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. So we start here, this is talking about the Jewish leaders, and they're epitomized by Caiaphas, right? Caiaphas is the high priest this year. So the Jewish leaders, they lead Jesus to the praetorium, which is where Pilate resides. Most likely it's the old palace of Herod the Great that he made for himself. And when Pilate was in town, which he usually was for the high feast, in case there was any uh, disturbances, if there were any riots, if there was any unrest, Pilate, when he was in town, would stay there at the governor's residence. Remember, Pilate was the prefect. He was the governor of this area, the Roman governor. And so they brought him, Jesus, they brought him to the praetorium where Pilate was. And of course, they don't want to enter because it's Passover. To enter into a Gentile's place of residence, they could be defiled by it. So if they were to enter, they would be ceremonially unclean. So they could not eat the Passover meal that was to happen that night. And of course, uh, this entire account we read tonight is laden. It's, it's overwhelmingly ironic. Because what they don't realize is they don't want to be defiled to eat the Passover, not realizing they are leading the true Passover lamb to be sacrificed, of whom they will not eat. They refuse to eat of his true sacrifice because they're worried about the shadow of things. The Passover meal that they want to take of is being overshadowed by what Jesus is about to do. And of course, they're about to miss out on it, aren't they? So Pilate, Pilate went out to them, meaning the Jewish leaders, and he said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, if this man were not an evil doer, we would not have delivered him to you. Right? What's their main concern? If you remember, Caiaphas has had a prophecy that has overshadowed this whole last section of the gospel. What was his prophecy? That it is better for one man to die than to lose the entire nation. Remember, Caiaphas had prophesied that year that Jesus would die for the nation. Now, of course, in his understanding, it was not that Jesus was sacrificing himself to bring you know, spiritual salvation. It's that, hey, if we kill Jesus, the Romans won't destroy us. Right? If we can get rid of this, this guy, this 
guy who keeps saying he's our king, this guy who keeps claiming to be God, if we can get rid of him, it will save our nation from being destroyed by the Romans. That was Caiaphas' prophecy. That's how he understood it. And of course, Caiaphas spoke better than he knew, didn't he? Because what he actually prophesied was that Jesus would save his nation by his death, but in a spiritual sense. Jesus' sacrifice will save his people and many others besides, huh? As we can all attest here tonight. So they ask, uh, excuse me, Pilate asks, what accusation do you bring? They say he's an evildoer. He's an evildoer. What's their main concern? Well, it's political at this point. Their concern is political. And although in John it doesn't state the charge, um, they have a charge they're bringing against him. Now, this is the trial scene of John. In the Synoptic Gospels, you actually have the interaction between Jesus and Caiaphas. And, and you have that trial, the Sanhedrin trial, where Caiaphas is bringing charges against Jesus. In the, in, in the Gospel of John, we actually don't have the trial of Caiaphas. We have Jesus brought before Annas, his father-in-law, but we don't have the trial before Caiaphas because this is Jesus' trial in the Gospel of John. It's his trial before Rome. It's his trial before Pilate. And so a lot of this account is not found in the synoptics. The whole conversation between Jesus and Pilate is only found in John. So what's going on here is they're bringing a charge. And what is that charge? Well, we're going to find out that the charge, even though John doesn't say it explicitly, is that Jesus is claiming to be a king. That's the political charge, right? Because the basis of their argument is that he is a political threat to Caesar. This man claims to be king over a subject people. These people, the Jews, are supposed to be subject to Rome. They're supposed to be Caesar's servants. And Jesus is coming and claiming to be their king, or at least that's what the, uh, excuse me, what the chief priests and the Pharisees say. That Jesus is claiming to be a king and therefore a threat to Caesar. Pilate, you need to condemn him. Now, here it just says he's an evildoer. They don't say that explicitly. But let's go on and you'll see. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. What's Pilate saying? He's saying, if he's an evildoer, just judge him yourself. See, Pilate doesn't know yet what necessarily what they're saying. And so he thinks, whatever little Jewish dispute you have, deal with it yourself. You have the right to, to judge your own people and, and deal with them as you will. But see, here's the reason they brought Jesus to Rome. Because they knew they wanted to kill him. And the one right they did not have was to put someone to death. If they had wanted to just beat him, or if they wanted to just reprimand him, they could have done it themselves. It's their desire for a capital punishment. That means they have to bring him to Rome because they do not have the right to put anyone to death. That's what they say. The Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. Interestingly, when they say that, we are not permitted to put anyone to death, it says this was to fulfill the word of Jesus which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. When did Jesus talk about what kind of death he was going to die? Jesus did. When did he talk about it? He said, 
I will be lifted up from the earth in John 12. When I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Now, the capital punishment in Judaism is not crucifixion, is it? It's stoning. If you were killed for a capital punishment in Jewish culture, you were stoned to death. And Jesus has already said, I will be lifted up from the earth, referring to crucifixion. And when they say, we're not permitted to put him to death, we need Rome to do it for us, it's actually fulfilling Jesus' prophecy. Because he had already said, I'm going to be crucified. My death will be me lifted up from the earth. Lifted up, like on the cross. And so Jesus' prophecy is fulfilled here because it will be Rome who puts him to death, not the Jews. Rome is the one who gives uh, treasonous people crucifixion as their punishment. So it is imperative, according to Jesus' prophecy, that Rome is the one who carries out his sentence. Jesus' prophecy is fulfilled just like the words of Scripture, Jesus' prophecies, his own words are fulfilled, just like Scripture. So therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium, and he summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now remember, this is the first time it's been brought up. They never said anything about king of the Jews from what we've read. But that's how we know the charge is the that kingship piece because there's no reason for Pilate to ask it based on what he's heard so far so we know somewhere behind the narrative stands the fact that the charge they brought against him was that he was proclaiming to be a king that he was you know a, a king pretender he was trying to usurp political power from Caesar that was the idea of why they wanted to have him charged and so Pilate says to him are you the king of the Jews Jesus answers, are you answered, are you saying this on your own initiative? Or did others tell you about me? He says, is this something you're coming up with, or is this coming from somewhere else? And of course, the other party that would bring it up is the chief priest, that they would bring up this charge. Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered to me, de delivered you to me. What have you done? Now Jesus doesn't answer what have you done, but he answers the question about kingship. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Jesus says, yes, I am a king, but not the kind who needs political power for my kingdom. I'm not the kind who needs to have this great authority that I, I pull to myself and I, and I crush peoples underneath my feet. Jesus says, my kingdom is nothing like that. My kingdom is not based on the power that the world so craves. No, my kingdom is different. It's not of this world. Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. 
For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Jesus' point is, yes, I'm a king, but I'm not like the other kings you know. See, I was born for this purpose, to testify to the truth, the truth of who God is. See, truth in the Old Testament is often God's covenant faithfulness. God's covenant faithfulness, the truth of his promises, that he will fulfill them and bring them to pass. The Old Testament uses truth in that context. And Jesus, who said in John 14, I am the truth, Jesus is the visible explanation of who God is. The visible explanation of God's character in flesh. She says, I have come for this very reason, to testify to who God is, to what truth is. And anyone who's of the truth, they know my voice. Just like he said in John 10, those who follow me, my sheep, they know my voice. Here he says again, everyone who's of the truth hears my voice. <coughs> Pilate said to him, what is truth? What is truth? What's Pilate trying to get at? Uh, excuse me, what's Pilate trying to get at? I don't necessarily know, but the one thing I do know is the point is Pilate is not of the truth. Because he does not heed Jesus' voice. Pilate in this story is the world, isn't he? He's a representative of the world. He's not one of God's people. He is the Gentile world personified in this story. He's not of the truth, has not heard Jesus' voice. And yet, yet he has some form of sympathy for Jesus, doesn't he? Because throughout this passage, he's reticent to pass judgment on Jesus. He doesn't want to do it. So here... He says all of these things. And, and, and what's possible is that, that Pilate can discern that Jesus is no real threat. He's listened to what Jesus has to say, and he can tell he's not the, the man who's going to cause an uprising, right? And there's been many throughout you know, Roman history, there had been many Jews who had done that. I'm sure they understood how rebellious they were as a people because they were constantly trying to revolt. In fact, it was only 40 years after Jesus' death that their last revolt happens, and Titus crushes them, destroys their temple, does not leave a stone on another stone of their temple, and, and kills countless number of Jews. And of course, you have uh, the, the massacre at Masada, which is the end of that revolt. Titus completely crushes the Jews. And that is the last time they ever have a temple. There is no Jewish temple. It's, it's from that point on that the rabbis become important. And that leads to today where the synagogue has still... The central point of Judaism is the synagogue. It's no longer the temple. But in that day, it was. But whatever the case, Pilate seems to be able to discern that Jesus is no real threat politically. So when he goes back out, it says this, When he had said this, Pilate went out again to the Jews and said to them, 
I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I release uh, for, uh, that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. John says, Now Barabbas was a robber. Now again, here's another point of irony. What is a robber? Robber is a technical term that's used to talk about an insurrectionist. Barabbas is what we would call today a terrorist. He's someone who's fighting the state power. In, in you know, more positive terms, we might call them a guerrilla, right? They're a, a guerrilla warfare type of person. They're fighting against the state. They're, Barabbas is a person who wants to destroy Roman rule. So again, this is heavy with irony. Why? Because they're charging Jesus as a political threat to Rome and releasing an actual terrorist. Jesus, who hasn't harmed anyone, has not threatened Roman rule, and they want to kill him for it, and instead they release a terrorist who clearly has fought Roman rule. There's the irony of Barabbas. So Pilate has said, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. And what does he do despite that? He tries to appease the Jewish leaders. How does he appease them? He has Jesus scourged. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. What a sentence. It uh, does not do justice to what that reality is. It's one sentence. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. There were three different kinds of punishments in Roman uh, society that related to the beating or the scourging. You had some for smaller offenses, which were just kind of a, a small beating. You had... Uh, for larger offenses, they, they had another that they called flogging. And the one that they would do as a death sentence that would be related to crucifixion or other capital crimes was called a scourging. A scourging. This was the scene you all, uh, if you've seen it, I'm sure you all remember in The Passion of the Christ where they had whips and the whips were ended, cat of nine tails. They would have all these tendrils on the whip. And they would be ended with flecks of iron or bone to tear the flesh. This is what would leave someone completely beaten and bloodied. That would tear apart their flesh. It's often uh, would leave bones exposed and your, your entrails seeping out. This was not a, this is not a uh, pleasant experience to imagine even seeing. In fact, many people who experienced the scourging actually died before their sentence was carried out. It was so heinous. 
It was so intense. And, and unlike uh, the Jewish culture where they could only give 39 lashes, right? 40 minus 1, that was their, their punishment. Uh, the Romans had no restriction. They would go until their soldiers were exhausted. Their soldiers were exhausted from beating a man. They would strip him naked and tie him to a post to leave his flesh exposed for the whips. And Jesus experiences this in Pilate's mind to try and appease the Jews. Maybe if uh, he experiences the severe beating, then they won't want to kill him. They can continue and with what I said. I've found no guilt in him. But remember, Pilate is not uh, free from blame either. He's already said, I find no guilt in him, and yet has sentenced him to this scourging. He's not uh, a politically brave man to just let Jesus free, which he clearly, according to his judgment, should have. He said, I find no guilt in him. So what happens next? The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him and they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. And to slap him repeatedly in the face. After the torture, after the pain, after the brutality, they come up to mock him, putting a crown of thorns and a purple robe, a purple robe. Purple is the color of royalty. Purple dye was extremely hard to come by. It was a very rare substance, so purple was considered the color of royalty. So they put a mock robe on him and a mock crown. And they say, Hail, King of the Jews. Look at the look at what the king of this mighty people looks like, a bloody, beaten, worn down man. So Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And what the people don't know is Jesus stands out on the platform before them in the praetorium, clothed in a purple robe and a crown of thorns, and that he actually is their king. And that's the biggest irony of the whole passage is that this bloodied, beaten, shredded man is actually their king. And though they call him king to mock him, he actually is the king. And that crown is a real crown. And that robe is a real robe of majesty. And in his bloodiness, in his suffering, in his pitiful state, you see the glory of God. 
That is Jesus' glory. It is his suffering. It's what Jesus has said all along. My hour has not come. Well, what is his hour that he's been talking about this whole time? The hour of his glorification. That's what he said. What was the hour of his glorification? It was the hour of his crucifixion. In John, they are one. Jesus' glory is his crucifixion. Jesus' glory is his suffering. And so in his glory, the world looks at Jesus and sees nothing but a pitiful, pathetic, weak, criminal. So what they see him as a condemned man. But it's actually as we see him knowing the truth as Christians that it's in that the crown of thorns and the purple robe and the beaten bloodied body that we see his glory. The glory of the Christ. Pilate came out and said, Behold the man. This is an acclamation because this scene is meant to be Jesus being proclaimed as king. Behold the man. Why does Pilate say that? Well, one, he's showing them there's Jesus. In Pilate's mind, what's he, he doing? He's, he's showing them how pathetic Jesus is. He's thinking they might show compassion when they see his bloodied body, that they might see him and have compassion on him. Behold the man. Isn't this enough? Has he not paid for his crime? That's what Pilate is saying. But for the Bible reader, for those of us who know our Old Testament, for these Jews who would read this Bible, Read this book, or this gospel, excuse me, and, and know their Old Testament. Behold, the man has a, a specific referent. It's 1 Samuel 9, verse 17, in which God says to Samuel, Behold, the man of whom I spoke. He will be king over Israel. He's speaking of Saul the first king of Israel. <coughs> the Lord says, Behold the man. It's referencing that passage when he says, Behold the man. It's Pilate proclaiming Jesus as king. And in his mocking tone, we find again the irony of John because Pilate is mocking Jesus. He's mocking the Jews. And yet, it's a true kingship that's being acclaimed. The real kingship of Jesus. Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, are they moved by compassion? Are they touched by what Jesus has suffered? No. No, it seems to inflame their desire for his death. 
when they saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Three times Pilate has said, I find no guilt in this man. And then the Jews come out with their real reservation, because I think we all know they were not worried about whether Jesus was a threat to Rome. See, their real reasoning that they hated him was not political. It was religious. And so they lay bare before Pilate what their true motivation is in verse 7 of chapter 19. See, they've said he's the king. He's going to affect Rome. And Pilate keeps saying, I find no guilt in this man. And so they say, the Jews answered him, we have a law. And by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. Their complaint was not that he was a king or that he might affect Rome. No, their complaint is that he was a blasphemer in their eyes. That he made himself out to be like God. And it's interesting because Pilate is struck by that statement when they reveal it. It says, therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Because they had said he made himself out to be the Son of God. And again, here's John being ironic. Because Pilate, the pagan Gentile, has more reverence for Jesus than the Jews. Pilate is more quick to believe that there could be something to the claim that Jesus says he's the Son of God than the Jews are. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid, and he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, this is telling, where does he go immediately? said to him, where are you from? He asked about Jesus' origins. Remember, the Jews have said all over the place, they've said, we know where this man comes from. He's from Nazareth. It's from nowhere. We know where he's from. Pilate immediately goes to the question of origin. Where are you from, Jesus? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And I have authority to crucify you, Jesus answered. You could have no authority over me, unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Who's he who has delivered me to you? Well, most likely it's Caiaphas, who stands as the head of the Jewish leadership. But notice what Jesus says. He says they have the greater sin. So there's no doubt that at the core of what is happening to Jesus is the chief priest, is Caiaphas, the high priest. But yet Pilate is not absolved of any, excuse me, Pilate is not absolved of any guilt. It's not like all of a sudden Pilate is totally okay in what he's done. Clearly he has sin as well. But it is the greater sin of the Jewish people who should have known better. 
who should have been expecting their Messiah, they have the greater sin than Pilate did. It says, when Jesus had said that to him, as a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. And so what do they do when push comes to shove? They get the thing they want, they manipulate Pilate. They say, man, it would sure be bad if word got back to, to Caesar. It would sure be bad if the emperor found out you let a guy go who said he was a king. They threatened Pilate. Pilate's already on thin ice. He was known as a brutal man with a hard post being over the Jews who were a rebellious people. So they make a threat. Anyone who makes, out, makes themselves out to be a king opposes Caesar. So you're no friend of Caesar if you let him go. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and Pilate sat down on the judgment seat. Uh, Pilate is about to pass judgment. He's about to give the sentence of the trial. So he sits on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day. Now here's where John is making a theological point. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. What is he saying? What is he saying here? The point is that this is the exact time when the Passover lambs are being slaughtered. John has theologically lined up the story so that at the exact moment, the exact hours, when the preparation for Passover is happening, meaning the Passover lambs are being killed, that Jesus is being sentenced, the true Passover lamb. What is John saying? That Jesus is the true Passover lamb. And all the sacrifices that are literally going on at the moment Jesus is being sentenced, they're all passing away as Jesus himself does the true work of Passover, the true work of sacrifice. One more time, Pilate said to the Jews, Behold your king. Just like behold the man. Behold your king. Harry says it explicitly. So they cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king. But Caesar. And in that statement is fulfilled John 1.11 that he came to his own and his own rejected him. And even worse, the Jewish people, the chief priests specifically, as representing the people, make a statement that is really an apostasy, isn't it? 
For who does the Old Testament tell us is the king of Israel? God himself. God himself is the king of Israel, and they say we have no king but Caesar. Gone is the thought from their minds that the Lord himself is their king. Gone from their minds is the thought that their Messiah was coming. Because who was the Messiah? Who was he to be? What does Mashiach, the Hebrew, even mean? Messiah means anointed one. For what purpose was the anointed one anointed to be king? Like Saul, who was anointed with oil. Like David, who was anointed with oil. The Messiah was the anointed one for one specific purpose, to be the king of Israel. They reject God, they reject Messiah with the line, we have no king but Caesar. They are more committed to Rome than they are to their own Jewish faith. And what is Pilate's decision? What is Pilate's response? So he handed them, he, excuse me, so he handed him over to them to be crucified. To who? To the chief priests. Now obviously the Roman soldiers were the ones who actually did the crucifying of Jesus. But the point of the verse, he handed him over to them, them being the chief priests, is that it was their design. It was their plan. It was their intention for Jesus to be crucified. So Pilate gave Jesus over to their sinister plot to be crucified. <clears throat> and yet in their plotting, in their despicableness to reject their God and their Messiah was actually the plan of God. That is the great mystery of the crucifixion. The crucifixion was the greatest evil that has ever happened in human history. That we crucified the Lord of glory. The worst thing humanity has ever done. And yet in doing it, God's will was fulfilled. That's the great irony. It was carried out by human hands and by the hands of evil. Satan had thought he won by defeating Jesus, by killing him. And yet the New Testament always reminds us, no, it was at his hand. It was at the hand of God that all of this was orchestrated. He was the one who sent his son to die. And Jesus himself even claims authority over it in the Gospel of John, doesn't he? Remember back to John 10, I have authority to lay my life down and to take it up again. No one takes it from me. It is the plan of the Father and the Son that this would happen, even though it was done by evil human 
And so while we recognize it for the great and dark and heinous evil that it is that Jesus was despised and treated like this, we also praise God and exalt his name and glorify him because it was his plan to save us. And we do both of those things. We must do both of those things. We can't lose either of them. We can't lose the praise of God's plan to bring salvation. And we cannot lose sight of the heinousness of what Jesus experienced at the hands of evil men. And frankly, at our own hands for our own sins committed against him. Just like Barabbas, we are released and freed at the cost of Jesus paying his penalty. We are let go, and he pays the price. In this act, Jesus accomplishes redemption. And so we never turn away, we never look away from the crucified Jesus because we know that to look upon the crucified Jesus is the moment at which we see God the clearest. The hour of Jesus' glorification, which is the hour of his crucifixion, is the place at which we see God and his character most fully displayed the center point of human history. Jesus' death, his resurrection, his exaltation, his pouring out of the Holy Spirit is the central event of all human history. And so tonight we look back at the suffering Jesus endured before he even went to the cross. As Isaiah says, his stripes, his stripes have brought us healing. His wounds, they paid for our sins. Let me bless you today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the crucified Messiah. We know it was your plan. We know you orchestrated these events before we even existed we know that you brought salvation to us through your son's pain. And we are grateful. We are grateful that in him we find salvation. We are grateful that he was willing to pay that price and we're grateful that you sent him to do it. Lord, the same spirit that walked with Jesus to empower him to live his life and to die his death. Would you empower us again, afresh, anew, with that same spirit? The spirit you have made to dwell in us because of Jesus. Would you give us a fresh refilling of your spirit that would make us look like your son, that would make us operate like your son? For every person in this room, would they see Jesus the suffering Savior, and be reminded of the great cost that he paid, but also the great benefit it was to us that he suffered. 
We love you. I pray a blessing over each person in this room tonight. Would you help us to see you clearly again? We love you and we praise your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.